But I can tell you that the one hallmark of all of our bourbons and our whiskeys has been they don't seem to drink to proof. So when you pour someone a dram of our, I never use that word dram. I'm trying to be fancy for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Well, if you're looking for a bourbon that has been crafted by arguably the best distiller of weeded bourbon, plus blended by the most respected nose in the industry, well, then you're looking for Wyoming whiskey. And the story of how Wyoming whiskey got started is completely fascinating. And that's why I invited David DeFazio. He's one of the original co-founders to come on the show and share an idea of how starting a winery turned into a distillery that actually ended up, in his words, failed on their first release, but it's now crawled its way back to greatness. And David shares the story of buying a Vendome still, but he didn't know how to distill himself, so he had to go find a distiller, and he found Steve Nally. He's the man responsible for decades of weeded bourbon production at Maker's Mark, and now serving as the current master distiller at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Well, he took him out of retirement, and he would be the person that would set them up for amazing whiskey for years to come. But that's not all. David and his team also got Nancy Fraley to come on board and be the person who would take all the releases to the next level. And make sure you stick around to the end to hear about some ride distillation fun. But with that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Uh, This week's idea comes from longtime listener Jason Markham, who writes, what the heck is stone fruit and what does it taste like? So you may hear uh, a lot of people talk about stone fruit when they're in a tasting note, and uh, that's where Jason's query comes from. He's wanting to know uh, what is stone fruit and uh, how to develop his palate, and you know, he's kind of like stuck on what is stone fruit. So real simple here for you. Stone fruit is something that you all know what it is. You just don't necessarily call it uh, by stone fruit. And it's basically any kind of fruit that has a pit in it or what is sometimes referred to as a stone. So like anything that has a center in the fruit usually has like thick skins and that's considered stone fruit. So some common types, peaches, uh, plums, you're looking at, you know, cherries are actually considered stone fruit, but I don't think you'll hear many people outright call it that. Nectarines, you know, mangoes are considered stone fruit. I find mangoes to be a little bit more fascinating because they're they're so tightly webbed that if not, webbed is the wrong way, but I would say sometimes you bite into it and it's like you, you've gotten sutures in your teeth. Like if you bite at the wrong angle, you can really get, uh, it really gets rough. Uh, raspberries are considered stone fruits, you know, because of the cluster of tiny, tiny stones that are basically like pits, if you will. Blackberries are the same way. A lot of the berries are olives actually considered stone fruits as well. And probably last but not least, and I, if I taste this, I'm just going to come out and say, 
I taste coconut. I'm not going to be saying I taste a stone fruit. So I, I think a lot of these are called out by their very individualistic flavor note, whether it's apricot, peach, uh, raspberry, coconut. You're going to hear me refer to that. I don't like using the word stone fruit in my tasting notes or describing something because I'm very much about being specific. But I recall in wine, people would use stone fruit more often than that they would use, you know, apricot. But if you ask me, you know, if a stone fruit can mean an apricot or a coconut or a plum, that's pretty damn variable. And so I would rather laser in on what those specific things are. So you're not going to hear me use stone fruit, although it's a very common, commonly used uh, term in, uh, in a tasting note. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you would like to be like Jason, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button. And if I like the question, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Hey everybody, welcome to Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. I'm joined by Ryan and Fred today. hey Hey, what's going on, guys? As we start to a, another guest that we've never had on the show before, but we've had people that have surrounded him on the show before. And I remember when I first tasted this whiskey, I believe it might have been a listener of the show that sent it in, and he said, listen, you guys got to try this stuff. And we sent it, I think it, Ryan, maybe... Correct me if I'm wrong. It was like a five-year weeder or something like that. And we tried it and we looked at each other going, okay, I think they're onto something out here. We should we should probably pay more attention to what's going on out there in Wyoming. Is that the way you remember it? Because at least that's the way I, I kind of visualize it. Oh, yeah. I remember being here in your basement 
And we always get sent stuff and you're like, oh boy, here we go. Wyoming whiskey. What's this going to be like? And uh, I love those moments when you try something new from a different state and it just like it clicks. And that's what happened when we tried it. And then you start digging into it and you realize like, oh, wow, there's, uh, you know, some really big names in the industry there behind, you know, helping along with this project. And no wonder it tastes so good. You know, and that's about all I know about this brand. And um, I'm really excited to dig deeper into the genesis of it and where it got to where it is today and how can, you know, someone from Wyoming really take on, you know, the legacy states of Kentucky, you know, Tennessee, Indiana. How do you make your kind of niche in the market being an abnormal, I guess, geographical area for whiskey production, which maybe not historically, but you know, definitely these times for sure. It's not what people would assume and uh, affiliate with correct right away. Yeah. And I I remember my early introduction to uh, Wyoming whiskey was my days at Whiskey Advocate. I remember, you know, having a meeting with uh, Lou Bryson and John Hansel. We're at a whiskey fest. We're kind of sitting around talking and we were talking about the state of like these these craft brands, these newer brands outside of Kentucky that were like, who's going to make it? Who's not going to make it? And pretty much any brand that was tied to Dave Pickerel kind of came to the forefront. And then, we're, then we were like, hey, you know what? There's another Maker's Mark master distiller who's making a making a move somewhere else. And we're like, oh, yeah, what, 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 where? What, what about it? It's like Wyoming whiskey. And then we, and we you know, Steve Nally and... The pedigree of being a master distiller at Maker's Mark, I mean, you basically, you jump to the line of peaking the editors of Whiskey Advocate. You know, we were very interested in that brand, and it's been amazing to see how far they've come. And, and you know, from a tasting perspective, two years in a row, they've made my top 100. I think they've, I think they do a great, great job out there. Absolutely. And I also want to give a shout out. It's uh, John Martin was the listener that always suggested it and sent samples to us and stuff like that. So I definitely want to give him a shout out as we do that. John Martin. Thanks, John. Yeah. John's been great, by the way. John and I communicate, we email pretty frequently and he has been relentless in his pursuit of the bourbon pursuit. I mean, he's he's awesome. He sent me whiskeys over the years and uh, I wouldn't be here without him. So I very much appreciate John. So, David, you're saying you could have a pursuit of the Bourbon Pursuit episode with John? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> That's what I'm looking for, yeah. That's the next step. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So you heard his voice right there. This is David DeFazio. He's the co-founder of Wyoming Whiskey. So, David, we're glad to have you on the show today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and before we jump into Wyoming Whiskey, I know you've got a, a pretty interesting past because you had practiced law at one point and everything like that. But let's kind of just talk about your journey and what got you to the point that you're at right now. What was what was your influence on whiskey growing up? What would made you want to start building this business? Go ahead and kind of give us the the pitch there. So I would say I'm originally from, I had lived in Louisville when I was a kid, as we discussed before the show, but upstate New York is really what I consider home. My folks moved up there when I was a sophomore in high school and then went to college in upstate New York. And at some point along the way, my dad said, all right, enough of you you know, doing shots of whiskey and drinking Jack and Coke. Why don't you try to sip this? And it was an Elijah Craig 18. And I had never had anything like that before because A, I didn't have the money to buy anything like that. But B, I wasn't even aware of it, right? It was all about getting drunk when you're in college. That's about it. So my dad sat me down and he goes, you sip this you don't shoot this. 
And he's the one who introduced me into that, into the world of appreciating this, this whiskey. And so I slowly developed a taste for it over the years. I moved out to Jackson, Wyoming, uh, right after college. I had the skiing bug, right? And I wanted to go to the greatest ski area in the country, and Jackson's definitely that. So I was a ski bum for a year. I was a whitewater guy in the summer. I was a lifty in the winter. And then I went back to law school in DC at Catholic University. And during the summer months, instead of being an intern and working for nothing and just getting burned out, I came back out here and was a whitewater guide. And then when it was all said and done, I had come out here in the fall of 96 after taking the bar exam in California. And because it was my intention to move to Northern California and try to make a go of it there. But I met Kate Mead. My whitewater boss was getting a divorce. He asked me if I wanted to meet his attorney. I said, yeah, why not? And the night before at the stagecoach bar in Wilson, Wyoming, he punched me in the face because I caught him cheating at arm wrestling. And uh, when I rushed him to call him out, he uh, punched me and then the zipper on his cut my cheek. Anyway, so long story short, I walked into Kate's office. No, no, keep going with the story. I, I want to hear more about this. Who got stitches? <laughs> it, I didn't need a stitch, but I definitely bled. And uh, so the next morning, I walk into Kate's office with my only pressed white shirt, pair of khakis. I'm there on time. David's there about 30 minutes late. So Kate and I just strike up a conversation. Where are you from? I tell her, I said, I went to St. Lawrence University. And she cocks her head I was like, oh, it's this small liberal arts school in upstate New York. She goes, oh, I know where it is. That's where I went. And so there was an immediate <laughs> no bond there. And so we, um, long story short, I said I'd be happy to volunteer my time and work on David's case. And two weeks later, they offered me a job. It, it was kind of a sad circumstance because Brad's mother had passed away earlier that summer in a horseback riding accident where one of her younger horses that she really liked had reared up and fallen back on her. And so she passed away on her birthday in June. And the, due to that, a very unfortunate circumstance, tragic circumstance, they were up to their eyeballs and work at their law firm and in the ranch and at the ranch. And so uh, I think I just came in on the right day and there was that connection through St. Lawrence and they hired me not long after. We'll go into a little bit more in depth about some of these people, because I think this is the first time that people are hearing about some of these folks who Kate was and everything like that as well. Sure. So Kate's originally from Vermont. She was a ski racer. She had skied at Wyoming and at St. Lawrence. She went back to school at St. Lawrence and, and raced for them. But she had met Brad Mead uh, when she came back out here for law school. Brad Mead, his family, he's a fourth generation cattle rancher. His grandfather, Senator Cliff Hansen, was a two-term U.S. Senator and governor from Wyoming. It was an honor to know him. He was the last of the statesmen, if you ask me. Maybe Alan Simpson, I think you could probably say, he was the last of the statesmen in the Senate. But uh, Senator Hansen was a legend from here. And um, Brad kind of took me under his wing, taught me a lot about you know the ranch and obviously law and whatnot. But the history of their family is what's most impressive. They've been called the Kennedys of Wyoming. Brad's brother just finished his second term as governor, for instance, Matt Mead. So really woven into the fabric of Wyoming. And so when this whole whiskey idea came up, which was Brad's idea, Kate wanted to start a winery. And these are Brad's words, not mine. He said, that's a terrible idea. You can't grow grapes in Wyoming, but we can make whiskey because all the grains we need are grown in the Bighorn Basin. So when that came up and they decided they wanted to do it, they called me over to their office and 
I was all nervous because I you walk in this creaky old building, which there are not many of them in Jackson. And uh, I walk into Brad's office and Kate's coming down the hall behind me on the wood floors. You could just hear the creaking and my Catholic guilt is just raging at this point. I'm like, what did I do this time? <laughs> and so Kate comes in, closes the door. I'm looking at Brad. I'm looking at Kate. And Brad says, Kate and I have decided we want to make bourbon. And this is in June of 06, to put it in perspective. And I just start laughing. I laugh right in his face. And because, you know, all this tension is broken by this, what I consider a joke, right? And he didn't laugh. And I turned to Kate for some relief, no relief. And I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. I said, well, how the hell do you make bourbon? He goes, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> and my head just starts spinning. I, I What? So- he was serious. He said, you know, we will fund the endeavor. This is not a hobby. We want it to be a money-making venture and you've got to do it right. You know, you, and I didn't know what right was. I, I'm, a, I'm an attorney, you know, with a history of Jack and Cokes <laughs> in college. And so we went to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival and it just started to unroll from there. Are you still doing wet water rafting tours on the weekends? Or are you, have you given that up finally? I gave that up. I, uh, I started working for Brad and Kate part-time and because I hadn't taken the bar here yet. So I was just like a legal assistant. And that was some of the best years of my life. The ski season in 96, 97 was the greatest of all time. And I could work at nights. I could study for the bar at night. And I was doing whitewater on Saturdays just because it was too fun. But I gave that up at around, I think it was 98 is when I finally quit that. But still very much a skier. I was about to say, you got to make sure you take advantage of the uh, the slopes while you're out there because it's some of the best skiing in the world right there where you're at. It's amazing. And this year, thank God, we've got a ton of snow. The whole West is really getting hit with snow. So it's a good year with the drought that we've been facing over the last, seems like decade or longer. Uh, this is going to go a long way in helping us. All right. So you go to Kentucky Bourbon Festival. It's a lot different than it is today, but kind of talk about what the plan was going into it. The plan was to learn as much as we could. And so Brad and I went down. And if you speak to Donna Nally, she's got an interesting take on this because she was on the, the board of, of that, the planning committee. But we luckily, through some connections here in Jackson, had the privilege of meeting with Max Shapira. We figured meeting with the largest family-owned you know, distillery, the head of the, of the largest family-owned distillery, would be very helpful to us. So he was very generous with his time. And he told us, don't do it. He said, it's going to cost three times as much, take three times as long, and be three times as difficult as you could possibly imagine. It sounds like Max, doesn't it? Yeah. And we, we walked out of that meeting and Brad and I looked at each other and we were like, screw that guy. You know, he just thinks we're competition. <laughs> he wants to tamp us out, you know, whatever. And egos are just raging at this point. I don't think you're entirely wrong with that attitude at that time. You know, Max was very protective of... Uh kentucky bourbon he's always been that way so there might have been a little bit of that element with him a little i'd say a lot <laughs> <laughs> but he was right i'll tell you he was 100 percent right it, it, it was a lot harder and a lot more expensive and it took a lot longer than we had anticipated for sure but he gave us some great advice and then we also were introduced to lincoln henderson and lincoln was our first advisor and he ended up taking a number of trips out here and consulted on yeast and accelerated maturation and some of the equipment placement at the distillery. And he's the one who introduced me to Rob Sherman, 
at Vendome Copper and Brass. Turns out Rob Sherman went to Trinity, Kenny. So he was a year older than me, but I and I never met him. But we had our first meeting with Vendome. And in this room, dominated by much older men, he and I were the youngest there. And so we just immediately gravitated to each other. And, um, and you know, we were the ones who ended up doing all the work. And I've fished out on his farm for bass and whatnot. But so he, he's become a good friend. But that's thanks to Lincoln. And then the actual event itself, you know, of course, you just go to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival and it's it's fantastic. You know, you get to try all different types of bourbons and take tours and, you know, do the trail. And so it was entry level. It was 101 level course of just going to the event all the way up to a 300, 400 level advanced course meeting with Max and, you know, getting to start to work with Lincoln. What made you think, I guess, coming to Kentucky Bourbon Festival, obviously it's all Kentucky and you're like, well, we're in Wyoming. How are we going to fit into this equation? Or what did you think Wyoming could offer to the, you know, the current whiskey landscape at the time? Well, I don't think we really looked at it that way when it started. I didn't think we were offering anything to the Kentucky landscape. I think it was, we were more, I think people from Wyoming are very self-sufficient. Most people from Wyoming don't care what anybody else thinks. You know, you're, you're pretty comfortable in your own skin. You, you work hard, you do your best, and that's all you can ask for. And so none of that was really in our minds at the time. But we quickly started learning about the politics of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival because we wanted to become a sponsor. We wanted to at least leave our fingerprint on that event in some small way. And we were told, we're sorry, this is the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And so we were not allowed to participate. So go build your own Wyoming bourbon festival. Is that what it was? <laughs> well, it's kind of turned into that a little bit, but I think Brad still donated money to the event in Wyoming Whiskey's name, just because that's the way Brad is. And uh, we just asked a bunch of questions and learned as much as we could. And we ended up designing a still and Vendome was fantastic. Always has been fantastic to us. And Lincoln was great, like I said. And then once the still was in the fabrication stage, I called Rob up and I said, hey man, you got to find me a distiller. He's like, what do you mean? I go, well, I'm not going to make it. He says, no one will ever drink it if I make it. You know. <laughs> so he, uh, he said, okay, give me some time. And it was about a month, maybe two months. He called me and he said, I found your distiller. I go, what do you mean? He goes, his name's Steve Nally. He was with Maker's Mark for 33 years. And I was like, well, that'll do. <laughs> He's hired. Was this taking Steve out of retirement or were we poaching him from somewhere else? We were going to pull him out of retirement. So he had retired two years before. and He and Donna both. And from my understanding of the situation, he was uh, driving a grain truck. You know, So he was just dropping corn and you know, other grains to different distilleries because he was bored. And he wanted to get back into the game. So I called his home, which was the number that was given to me by Rob, and I talked to Donna, and it turned into an interview, not of her, but of me, because she didn't think I was for real. So 20 minutes later, once I passed Donna's test, she gave me Steve's cell number, and I called, left a message with Steve, and as I hear it from them... He pulled into the driveway not long thereafter with his phone, with his flip phone open, holding out the number, like, look who called me. And she said, I know, I just talked to David for 20 minutes and it's real. And so jump forward, we flew them out here. We flew them into Jackson. And I don't know how many of you gentlemen have been to Wyoming, but 
Jackson and Teton County is a very different county than the rest of the state. It's very affluent, uh, much to the chagrin of the rest of the state. It's very beautiful. And we wanted to make sure that Steve understood that, okay, this is where, this is Jackson, where we live, but the distillery is going to be four hours to the east. So we drove them through some of the most beautiful and some of the most spare country that you could imagine. And we get them over to Kirby and say, this is where we're going to build the distillery. And they loved it. And so they accepted the job. And so we got Steve as our master distiller. And we got Donna as the head of our tourism, which is what she had been doing at Maker's. And then we were off to the races and started to spend a lot of money and finished building a distillery and then started filling barrels. By the way, Donna, one of the founders of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail as well, both Donna and Steve are in the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. And David, I'll say like that is one of the most beautiful stories of finding a distiller that simply just could not happen today. You know, I mean, talk about like, being ahead of the curve. When you were going through this, did you have a sense that there was there's about to be this climb in demand for for bourbon and really all American whiskey? No clue. None at all. We were unaware that there was anybody else doing this other than the big boys in Kentucky. So, you know, what was happening at Strand Strandhands was the first company that we learned about not long after we started. And then we started hearing about some folks down in Texas doing some things. And we were like, damn it. You know, I thought we were the only ones doing this, you know, but whatever, <laughs> we'll just do it better than everybody. And back to what I was saying about, you know, the Mead family and the Hanson family, you know, their reputations are very, very important in Wyoming. And Brad said to me, you've got to do this right. And so I was constantly trying to learn what is right. And one of the first things I learned was, is you got to make your own whiskey. You know, you can't source. You know, if you're going to put the name Wyoming on the bottle, it's got to be made here. And you've got to use as many of the local products and regional products as you can. So it was a mandate to find a farmer who was going to grow the right grains for us. We had to find the right water, which was a challenge because our distillery is in Hot Springs County. And as you know, Hot Springs water is not the water that you want to be using in distillation. So we had to find that, which we did uh, about 40 miles north in this little town of Manderson. They had found a mile deep limestone aquifer that hasn't seen the light of day in 6,000 years is what we're told by University of Wyoming. And so, boom, we have exactly what we need for water. We found our farmer. His name's Brent Regeth. He's up in Byron, Wyoming, and he's the one of the greatest guys in the world. When he talks about Wyoming whiskey, it's we, even though he doesn't own any Wyoming whiskey, you know, he's just, it's we, you know, we are doing this the right way. We are going to, and so we settled on a non-GMO corn. He tried 20 different hybrid strains, you know, and said, this is the one we're going to use. It has a high starch yield. And, and then the wheat, you know, that he selected was the right wheat. And then barley is something that I can't say is all from Wyoming because the nearest malting facility is up in Great Falls, Montana. So all of the barley that he was growing, you know, gets shipped up there and invariably it's going to get, you know, mixed in with some Montana grain, which Montana's good state, good people. We're not, we're not afraid to share with them a little bit in our products. So that's the only thing I would say is not Wyoming uh, all a hundred percent. And then obviously there's no Oak in the state, although I could put an asterisk on that to talk about later because we did find some Oak in the northeastern part of the state in this forest. 
and the the uh, Wyoming forester called me two years ago and said, David, I was tasked with building this trailer, but this wood is so beautiful. I was wondering if you guys would like to have some Wyoming oak barrels. And so we are currently aging that oak and we're going to make 10 barrels or so and start aging some whiskey in it. Who knows what'll happen, right? It, it could be great. It could be horrible, but um, so we're going to try that. But anyway, we get all of our wood from independent stave and, you know, we've tried to use regional labelers. Uh, so folks out of Salt Lake or do our labels and whatnot. And then we've been using glass from Mexico at Pavisa. So we tried to keep it as close to here as possible until we just can't source it from Wyoming. And then we go the next ring out and next ring out from there. I'm envisioning this Brad uh, Mead being like John Dutton or something, you know, from from Yellowstone, just like this. I know it's hard. It's hard to like hear these stories and not it, go it, there, right? It does like with Yellowstone and whatnot. But uh, so, you know, you got... I love it. That's all Wyoming, this and that. Did did Brad or anyone have an idea like, okay, I'm hiring Steve Nally to come in and make our whiskey for us? Do we let him dictate our style, our personality of whiskey, you know, our mash bills, or do we kind of tell him, no, this is what we're looking for? It was a blend. So leading up to this, I think one of the, well, there's two reasons why Brad asked me to do it, but one of them was definitely that he and I shared a love of certain bourbons. And so whenever there was a birthday or a barbecue or whatever, I would show up at the ranch usually with a bottle or a handle of makers. And I liked the weeded bourbon profile. And we would always try to outdo each other by picking a better bottle of bourbon to bring to whatever event it was. And there weren't a lot of selections back then. I mean, you guys in Kentucky obviously had a access to a heck of a lot more than we do out in Wyoming, but it was makers, you know, you'd get a bottle of Blanton's periodically, you'd get a bottle of, one of my favorites was Knob Creek, you know, so a bunch of different stuff, but we always fell back to makers. We liked the weeded profile. And so when Steve came out here, he was obviously very happy to hear that that's what we always gravitated towards, but we explained the different bourbons that we liked. We liked Four Roses, small batch. I still, to this day, think it's one of the better bourbons out there for the price, especially. But um, we told him what we liked, and he said, okay, I will do my best. And then he and Lincoln met, talked about what yeast they were going to select, and they settled on two. Anyway, so Lincoln suggested this one yeast in particular. Steve found another one, and they tested it on an old moonshiner's still that was sitting out in the backyard of some folks up in Kelly, Wyoming, Callum Mackay is his name. Good Scottish guy. Well, don't don't rat him out. Maybe he's got to keep that that still. It was not functional. I can assure you. We had to do a <laughs> lot of repairs to that old copper still. But he um, he loaned it to us, and Steve fixed it up, and that's what we tested it on. Settled on the two yeasts, and then he started making it. And so we started distilling on July fourth of '09. That's the day the still was turned on, and it was months later that Brad and I were having a drink somewhere and he goes, what if it's terrible? <laughs> you know, what, and I, how do we know it's, it's going to be concern. good? Yeah. It's everybody's you know, We had no here. idea. Like we didn't know there was a Nancy Fraley out there that we could hire or, you know, someone who could come in or Fred, you know, or somebody who could say, yeah, your, your white dog's good. You know, we just trusted Steve. I mean, the guy was in the hall of fame. He was with makers for 33 years. We just, it was a leap of faith that we had hired the right guy. So then it was just a waiting game from there, you know. 
what's the climate like for aging and maturation there? You know, I, I'm envisioning Wyoming being more of an arid type climate. And so how does that impact uh, your aging and maturation process? That's a huge question because I can't sit here and say anything definitively to you because I don't have the chemical background to explain what my theories are, but I'll tell you what our, our take is as a company on, on why our, our whiskey is a little different. Number one, all the maturation happens between May 1 and November 1 to November 30, depending upon the fall. Nancy has explained to us that once those barrels get below 40 degrees, they go into hibernation and not much, if anything, is happening during the winter months. And we have measured the internal temperature of some of those barrels, you know, in the 20s. So it's below free water freezing level, but it's there's just nothing happening at that point. And interestingly, in the winter months, if you were to sample any of our whiskeys, you would not be nearly as impressed with them as you would in the summer because they take on a wet grassy note in the winter. And we don't understand why, but it does. So we wait until they come out of hibernation in the spring and that's when our blending season begins and our barrel selections start. So in the summer months, you can have a 50 degree temperature swing outside. It's very arid. And during the middle of the day, it might touch hundred degrees. And in the evening, it could get down to 50, 60 degrees. So you have these massive diurnal temperature changes that we believe are really helpful because you're having a lot more action in those barrels on a daily basis than you would in other places like Kentucky, where the temperature is going to remain relatively constant during the summer months and fall. So we think that that plays a role in it. What role that is, I can't tell you, you know, I'm not going to sit here and make anything up, but that's doing something. And then Overall, those barrels are definitely going to be subjected to some of the most extreme temperature changes anywhere. Like the coldest temperature we've had already this winter over there was 24 or 25 below zero. Oh, well. God. <laughs> hard pass, hard pass. <laughs> those barrels aren't getting that cold. You know, there's a lot of thermal mass in those warehouses, but they get really, really cold. And then in the summer, they get really, really hot. And so those Big changes are having some sort of an impact. I don't know what, I can't explain it, but I can tell you that the one hallmark of all of our bourbons and our whiskeys has been they don't seem to drink to proof. So when you pour someone a dram of our, I'd never use that word dram, I'm trying to be fancy for you guys. When you pour someone a <laughs> shot of Outrider, you know, it's a hundred peasants, proof. man, don't be fancy for us. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you sip on that, very few people would say that's a hundred proof product. Our barrel strength products, Fred reviewed one of our barrel strengths when he was doing his elimination rounds a while back. And, you know, that product in and of itself, very few people would say it's 124 proof. You know, they would never guess that. And why? I don't know. Is it because those damn barrels are almost freezing in the winter and that's having some sort of impact on the alcohol molecule? Is it because they get so darn hot in the summer? I don't know. But something that we're doing out here is definitely causing that to be an effect. You know, it's interesting. Geographically, probably the closest uh, whiskey area for you would be Canada. And Canadians just still like higher proof points. You know, they're blending. They have a bigger concentration on, on blending. Have you, have you all taken a look at, you know, what you all are doing? It, it's kind of modeled. A lot of your products are modeled after... Kentucky and Tennessee, you know, warmer, warmer climates. Have you all 
analyze anything going on in Canada to see if that might be something that you kind of move your your process toward, like with like light whiskey or some of those types of products? Only on the surface. Uh, we did discuss at one point in the early days trying to develop some sort of American whiskey that would be modeled off of a Canadian whiskey, but it was quickly shot down. We were defiantly Wyoming. We we're definitely a United States product. And so it was killed pretty early on when I brought it up because in Wyoming, the end consumer, and I'm not answering your question directly yet, Fred, but give me a second. But in Wyoming, there's a lot of Canadian whiskey drinkers, tons, tons, tons. And so for the Mead family, it was important for them to try to capture as many Wyoming drinkers as possible. And bourbon is too strong for a lot of these palates out here. So I suggested, well, let's make a Canadian whiskey then. You know, let's do something like that. And there was just, there was an immediate resistance to that. So we didn't do that. But as far as on the distillation side, we haven't looked at that. And maybe it's because of, you know, with the, the yeah, we don't want to do a Canadian whiskey. We don't want to talk about Canada. Maybe that's it. But I'll suggest it to Nancy because that would make a lot of sense. I appreciate the suggestion. Oh, I, I just think it, it, it's interesting. There's just not a lot of comps for your your geography. It is such a such a crazy area. And I've seen your barrels. I've not been there. I wasn't able to go. Kevin, who works for me, got to go and did a great write up on the on the place. But I, I think the the location is like it's it it's so cool. There's there's things that can be accomplished in Wyoming that can't be accomplished anywhere else in the United States. So you kind of have like your own little lab where you could play around with and have some fun. You should really talk to the travel bureau because for some reason, I want to come out there in the winter to go skiing, but I can't drink your whiskey. So I have to come back in the summer to drink your whiskey from the barrel. So you're, you get me, you're getting me out there twice is what it comes out to be. <laughs> well, that's fine. But <laughs> please know, we now do have a heated storage building that we're holding private barrels small batch batches, you know, so that we could start filling come March for the summer season. So if you come out in the winter, I will make sure that we have plenty for you to uh, sample and enjoy. Yeah, I'll bring that in my parka. You got it. So talk about, you mentioned Nancy Freely. Some people may know her. Obviously we do. She's probably, in my opinion, one of the best blenders in the game. So talented. I've learned a ton from her whether she knows it or not i kind of stalk her on any interview she does because she's so smart but uh how did that relationship come together kate found her so what had happened is steve and donna had decided that they needed to get back to kentucky and it was somewhat abrupt and so we were training a distiller at that time and the goal was for steve to train this woman for about a year and then if she had gotten to where she needed to be then she would take over as distiller. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And so we found ourselves with a, you know, a big hole in the operation. So Brad's son, Sam, took on the distillation role and hired the right folks to make sure that that was going right. But as far as the barrel sampling, nosing all that, we just didn't have that expertise. And Kate read about her. And so she said, David, I think you should reach out to this woman. So I did. And Nancy came out, visited us, loved it. And to this day, you know, she says when we are one of her top three favorite distilleries to work with, and she's here frequently. 
and I have learned a ton from her. And it's one thing to sit down at a tasting table with her and listen. And, and let me say this, my palate is nothing like you, you gentlemen have. I mean, nothing. I am on my best day. I'm good on my worst day. I'm absolutely terrible and I've never been great. So just know that. But so I've learned a lot from her as we sit and we go through hundreds of barrels. It's fascinating, you know, to, to learn all of the, the stuff that you guys already know. But the real fun time is when you get her outside of the distillery and she's not super focused and she just starts talking about Armagnac and she starts talking about all the different things that, you know, she's experienced in her life and guns. I mean, she loves, she used to haul her 357. Now it's a 44 mag with her when she comes to Wyoming so that when she drives from Jackson to Kirby, she'll pull over and on BLM land, set up a target and just rip shots. I mean, she's... She's fascinating. Like there's so much to her. You know, she plays the bass. She studied comparative religion and Buddhism and whatnot. And I mean, she's just an absolute genius of a human being. So get a couple light beers in her, which she drinks oftentimes. You learn a lot. And it, it, we are the same age and we've become very good friends over the years. So it's been a, an honor and a privilege to know her. Light beer seem to be a common thread amongst a lot of people in the industry because you, you just get tired of drinking bourbon all day. That's exactly right. Your palate needs, uh, it's like water, like it's like soda water, you know? Right. But David, you know, don't sell yourself short because I used to drink bourbon and Cokes. That's how I got my start too. So it's oh, just- Oh yeah, uh, same here. Yeah. It's, now, granted, I didn't have my dad give me a bottle of Elijah Craig 18 to get me started down the way, but I found my own path. So I kind of want to roll back a little bit to what Fred had mentioned and alluded to a little bit earlier, and I think Ryan did too, about how you start getting outside of the circle of Wyoming. Because I would imagine when you and Brad and Kate sort of had this idea to create this distillery, I don't know much of the the business plan was the marketing aspect behind it. How did you plan on selling bottles? Was it just going to be geared towards your local community? Was there an idea that said, we're going to take this nationwide and compete with the big dogs? What was that that plan to kind of take that to the next level? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So I kind of want to roll back a little bit to what Fred had mentioned and alluded to a little bit earlier. And I think Ryan did too about how you start getting outside of the circle of Wyoming. Because I would imagine when you and Brad and Kate sort of had this idea to create this distillery, I don't know much of the the business plan was the marketing aspect behind it. How did you plan on selling bottles? Was it just going to be geared towards your local community? Was there an idea that said, we're going to take this nationwide and compete with the big dogs? What was that that plan to kind of take that to the next level? The lofty goal from the beginning was to create America's next great bourbon. So how do you do that? The way I approached it was we got to win the state. You know, you got to own the state. And we made the biggest mistake a small distillery can make. And you're looking at the guy who's probably 85% responsible for it. And that was, we released our first product too young. This is a state that, you know, we had a tremendous advantage. We've got the Mead family and the Hanson family, you know, behind us. And Matt was the governor when we released our first product. I mean, it, the, the excitement around our first release on December 1st, 2012 was incredible. Our marketing agency, 77 Ventures, had done a fantastic job of developing all the assets we needed and the, you know, the, the copy for all of our ads. And we got people just salivating, waiting for Wyoming Whiskey to come out. Because in a state that doesn't have many finished products, this was something that they could hold on to. You know, like we export cattle, we export oil and gas, we export coal, we import tourism. We've got Yellowstone, but, you know, can you guys think of anything from Wyoming that you've ever bought that you said, oh yeah, that's a Wyoming product? Yeah. I was like, the the list is pretty short. (laughs) It's very short. And we wanted to do it big time. So the fact that we were putting it on the bottle, you know, the bottle, the glass itself is embossed with the word Wyoming on it. And so people were pumped. They were so pumped. And the problem was we were drinking the Kool-Aid. And when you try new make, when it's clear, and then you try whiskey at one year, you're like, okay, doesn't taste great, but it's got a little color. Get to two years, starting to develop a little bit of flavor and a little more color. And three years, you're like, holy cow, this is really good. Well, it's compared to the new make. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Compared to Makers, compared to Knob Creek, compared to any of the other things that you know were out there at the time, it wasn't. And it was too young. And... The first distillate that Steve had been making when he flipped the switch on the still wasn't the best new make. And I'm not being critical of Steve by saying that. It's just he was used to doing things a certain way at Makers, and I think he just assumed that everything was going to come off great. We probably should have dumped the first four or 500 barrels worth of of distillate and either redistilled or done something with it. But four or 500? Ooh, that's a hefty number there. I was was thinking four to five, but not four to 500. We just... We hadn't figured it out. Our fermentation was not necessarily the cleanest at the time. What time frame is this? Is this 2013, 12? 2012, I think he said, yeah. So I'll jump in here and say, like, I've been, since we're talking here, I'm going back through emails from 10, 11 years ago, and I have an email from... From Mike Veach, you know, Mike Mike Veach and Susan Riegler and I, you know, we used to just, we'd go to Bourbon's Bistro and we would break stuff out that we've 
that are kind of new on the market. And I have an email from Mike Veach talking about how amazing you know Wyoming whiskey was, and that was like 2014. So it'd be right right around that your first release time frame. I think you know you're looking back being very hard on it, but I, just going back to looking at the palettes of the time, people really loved it, and it wasn't just Steve and Donna kind of carrying it carrying it through. So whatever whatever little tweaks you made in that time frame obviously worked. You know, the biggest thing that we did, Fred, was we waited. Once we realized that we had to come out with something that was too young, we said, okay, time out. Let's hold a little bit. Let's wait until this gets past four years. And that seemed to be a big turning point for our product. And it seemed to be that all of our barrels since then, four years is when it really gets to a point where I think it's, it's truly palatable. Five is our minimum now. So we learned our lesson. We actually went around the state with a team of 14 people, offered to exchange liquor stores, bars, restaurants with a four-year product for their three-year product. And we did our best to earn it back. But the best way to describe it is I'd say a third of the people that tried our first products, our first bourbon liked it. A third of them wanted to like it. And a third of them thought it tasted like kerosene. <laughs> At least you can be honest with yourself. It, it, it's, I mean, we had, we owned it from the beginning. We had a meeting. We were like, well, how are we going to attack this? I said, you, you know, Brad, the Mead family's always been honest about everything, and I am the same way. And I said, well, we just got to own it, and let's fix it. So we did, and I'd say we've, by 2016, 17, I think we had earned the trust of most of the people back, but I could still take you to a little bar in the middle of Wyoming, and we'd sit at the bar, and I'd offer to buy somebody a shot of Wyoming whiskey, and the guy would say, that shit sucks. You know, that would be the exact quote that I'd hear 90% of the time. and don't get me wrong. If I were to buy him a drink and he sipped it, I'll win him over almost every time. But again, we're dealing with people who like Canadian whiskey and that's just a different animal. So we got, we want it back. We're like, okay, wh where should we go next? Well, can, before you get there, can you talk a little bit about the campaign on, on how you wanted to win people back? Was it as simple as let's just go and reclaim every bottle that's out there? How do we give away bottles? How do we try people on it again? Kind of talk about what that methodology was to be able to get back in the, the eyes of the consumer. Pretty much everything you just said, you know, a lot of trading bottles out for other stuff to win back the trust of the retailers, a lot of tastings of the consumer. People really felt betrayed because we had worked them into a lather leading up to December 1st, 2012. And then all of a sudden what they're trying that they, they really trusted and wanted to believe was going to be incredible wasn't. So when we were able to put something in their hands that was much better, we got them back but first impressions are tough to recover from. And so that was the biggest and really only major mistake we've ever made. But once we got past that, then we were able to go into other markets that hadn't been tainted by that first sip. And in Colorado, we started doing pretty well. We launched in Southern California through a distributor there with a different model than most distributors. And that really worked. We started pushing over into the Dakotas, Montana, and that was a little harder you're looking at the one man sales force, you know, at the time, you know, we, we didn't have an army of people, you know, we were very, very thin. And so we had to hire distributors, which as you know, it's a barrel of fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's, they're no help. And they, you know, they, it's amazing. You sit in that room and they tell you what they can do for you, but they never say what they will do for you. And, and that's the difference. 
you know, and they want you to sign a contract. And luckily we were able to avoid contracts in almost every instance. And so when we entered into our partnership with Edrington, that helped pave the way. We didn't have to, you know, worry about getting, you know, buying out of a contract or whatnot. But that was 2018. Yep. Yep. So of course, Edrington's uh, McAllen's parent company, probably the best in the world at uh, marketing high-end luxury. Every other day, they're releasing a sixty thousand dollar product, <laughs> and that's like, oh, that's pretty inexpensive, you know. And you, you don't, no one bats an eye at it. With with that kind of luxury mindset, you know, from from McAllen's parent company, did you well change your change your release strategy, change your whiskey, like you were going at in the barrel, if I recall, one hundred fifteen proof. You know, did anything change with with them coming in? Yeah, somewhat. Your comment about them being ultra luxury and whatnot has probably been the one point of friction. You know, and I don't want to overstate it, but McAllen is so hugely successful, and it has a way of marketing. and And I joke, you know, you could add a hand a crayon to a child. And he draws something on this paper and they could put it on a bottle and sell it for 60,000 bucks. You know, that that's, that's the reputation that they have. You know, they don't have to be working and doing the blocking and tackling that a new brand does. And so what we didn't change a lot, but they have definitely encouraged us to focus a little more on our high end, which we are doing. You know, we're releasing products that are truly incredible at this point. I mean, I think our barrel strength is incredible. I think our 10-year anniversary edition, which we just put out, is incredible. I'll put it up against anything on the shelf. And, you know, they they definitely have encouraged us to do that. And I think that's the right move. But I've always been the one holding down the, we have to make sure that small batch remains our focus, you know, our, our flagship product, our core four, you know, which is small batch, outrider, double cask, and single barrel. And, you know, those four products come in from 45 bucks to a hundred dollars. And I think that's a good range right there. But then on top of that, you know, we have our 10 year, which is, you know, a $200 product. We have our barrel strength, which is going off at more than that. And then we've got these very, very rare releases, these national park editions. You know, we did an auction two years ago of four bottles and, you know, the bottles went for anywhere from eight to $15,000 a piece, but that was for the national park foundation. So, you know, it's, how has it changed beyond that? I would say Nancy had the most profound changes on us by telling us what our entry proof should be. We started at 110 with Steve. She told us to bump that up to 114. So that was a big change. And we're just now, we're really trying to figure out how our warehouses are working. You know, where, where are the honeypots? You know, where's the good spot in each of these warehouses where we're finding more single barrels? We're finding more barrels that are a little more unique, you know, a little more interesting. And they've just fostered that. You know, Edrington wants us to keep developing that. And we all want to find more single barrels. We all want to find more of these specialty bottles that are, or barrels that are, that could command a higher price point that people would really enjoy and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think we've maintained our DNA, you know, our, our, down to our core. We haven't changed that much. And I don't think they really want to change us that much. That'll remain to be seen in the upcoming couple of years. But um, so far, I wouldn't say that it's been from an outside point of view, there's been almost zero change. And from an inside point of view, there's just a lot more meetings, which I'm, <laughs> who's a fan of more meetings? <laughs> Kenny would love that. He loves uh, meetings. 
It's, death, death by beating. Yeah, it's my my live and die by the calendar. That's that's what it comes by. But, you know, this is this has been fantastic, and I, I, I'm. It's been one of those things that Ryan and I we tried the whiskey a while ago, and it it struck it struck something with us. We we tried it, and we we're like, okay, this is really damn good. We've got to dig into this more, find out more about the company and who makes it and the people behind it, because it's just one of those things that I'm sure Fred knows as well. There's a lot of stuff that gets sent our way, and some stuff you'll turn your nose at right away but this just definitely piqued our interest and so we want to know more about it well and and kenny it's not just it's not just getting bad product it's the amount of horrible stories that get pounded on us (laughs) it's true too yeah yes i mean and david i will say this like i've been doing this for a long time i've been getting a lot of pitches you all never sell yourself like you could i won't mention any names but there are distilleries that have farmland and they have a picture of themselves up there poised the the uh waving holding right holding the cattle the, as they're grazing through the yeah. light of <laughs> sun rays are shining down on them <laughs> they're peeking their head through the corn stalks yeah, yeah. i mean they, they, <laughs> people will take it like if 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 a lot of other marketers had your story and your and y'all's brand they would blow. I mean, it would be annoying. Uh, but you all hardly even touch on it. It's almost like you kind of keep it a secret. And in a way, I respect that. But at the same time, you know, I'm glad that you came on and talked about this because I think, uh, Kenny, you know, we've been doing this for a while. A lot, there's a lot of this is the first time I've heard some of these things, and yeah, totally. especially David getting punched in the face. So um, <laughs> that's right. That's definitely a John Dutton story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is refreshing. I mean, the the Outrider is fantastic. I've I've always gravitated towards that. It's at a hundred proof. It it drinks much lighter. It's so viscous for a hundred proof. It's got such a nice, creamy mouthfeel to it. It's a uh, and it's just like when I look at the bottle and it's like, you know, it's you feel like those cowboy days or those American, you know, old, you know, the the pioneer days or something. I feel like this connection to that when I'm sitting here looking at it. It's a very refreshing story. I'll tell you, to Fred's point, you know, Brad and Kate are pretty private people, despite the fact that their family has been, you know, in politics and whatnot, you know, they keep to themselves. I mean, they work their cattle every day, you know, they are the real deal and they're not necessarily comfortable getting out there and promoting. And, you know, that fell on my shoulders and I'm definitely more of an extrovert than they are, you know, but I've, even I have been reined in a little bit because, they don't want that to be, you know, the kitschy cowboy thing is not us, you know, and we would never pretend to be something that we're not, but we also don't want to boast about anything. And so it's always been an understated approach to marketing. And if we could squeeze more out of that, okay, but I don't think we ever will. You know, it's just not what, yeah. what our focus is. And I do think we're leaving something on the table. I do think we could probably expose a little more of what we are to people. And you might see a little bit of that in the future. But at this point, we're really trying to ride on the quality of our product. And for those people who want to learn more about us, you know, they could find podcasts like this, or they could go to the website and learn a little bit more or come and visit us. And, uh, you know, that's when, that's how we want people to experience it. I think if that's the wrong way to do it, we're doing it wrong. But, you know, that's the way that that we've wanted to do it all along. And the Outrider, to your point, I'll make this story quick. This is when I get to trash Steve for a second. So (laughs) Steve grew up making a weeded bourbon, right? That's what he did for a living. 
And if any of you have heard this story, I'm sorry for repeating it, but I mean, my job was to keep an eye on the publications, you know, and read Whiskey Advocate and, and whatnot and see what people are doing. What are the trends? What are upcoming trends? And one of them was rye all of a sudden started, you know, a little blip on the radar happening back in 08, 09. And I approached Steve and I said, hey, man, I think we should make a rye. He goes, nope. I'm like, why? He goes, rye sucks. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. America's starting to drink rye again. And, and I think we should grow some rye. He goes, I don't want to make rye. Now, technically, he worked for me. But you don't tell <laughs> a guy who's 6'4", with the biggest hands in the world, who's in the Bourbon Hall of Fame, what to do. So I did what any smart person would do. And that was, I went to my partner, Brad Mead, who's the ultimate boss. And I made him tell Steve that we had to do it. <laughs> or you tell Donna to tell Steve. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he did. And Steve was pissed at me, really pissed. Like no, no, all joking aside, he was pissed. Didn't want to do it, but he did. So uh, Brent grew the rye. Everything out here is winter rye because it needs that head start in the spring. And so he grew the rye. And I joked that Steve was out there trying to like till up the field and do donuts and whatnot to try to ruin it because he did not want to to make rye. He had some Roundup in his back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ready to take it down. So we, um, you know, bumper crop comes out and he said, I'm not going to make it until the end of our distillation season because it's going to foul the system. He said, you know, all the equipment's going to be fouled and then I'm going to have to clean it all. I'm like, all right, with the drama, Steve, you know, I know you got this. So in November and December of 2011, he got to making it and he made, well, on day one of fermentation, he called me and I won't repeat all the expletives that came out of the phone. Did, did it over foam? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this place smells like shit. He goes, I got foam all over the place. It's sticky. It stinks. You know? And I was like, Steve, <laughs> You're in the Bourbon Hall of Fame, man. You got a Rolodex. Call somebody. You know, like you you got this. I know you got this, man. So he did. He didn't talk to me for a while, but he did. So he made 100 barrels of, quote, rye, and he made 200 barrels of bourbon with rye as the flavoring grain. So after that was done, I never asked him to do it again because it definitely caused tension between us. Jump forward three years, and Steve leaves with Donna and... We're sitting on these 300 barrels on top of a lot of other weeded bourbon, of course, but I was very curious about this project. And so I asked Nancy and Sam to try it. And Nancy called me and said, David, this is some of the best young rye I've ever had. I'm like, no fooling? She's like, no fooling. I'm like, how about the bourbon? She goes, it's very good too. It hasn't come along as quickly, but it's very, very good. I'm like, great. Year four, they try it again. She said, the rye's ready. I said, well, let's wait. We learned our lesson. Let's not release it too young. Let's wait until it's five. It'll give us a year to come up with a label, marketing, all that stuff. Sam, what's the uh, mash bill of the rye? He goes, it's 48% rye. And I'm like, do the math again. <laughs> He's like, I've done it six times. Do you want me to tell you it's rye? I'm like, no. So panic sets in. We don't have a rye. You know, that was the goal. It's to make a rye. <laughs> So I called Brad. He couldn't believe it. He called Sam to do your math again. Same answer. So we panicked. And you know, what do we do now? And Nancy is telling us this is really, really good stuff. So the three of us huddled up and said, why don't we stretch the soup? Since it's now in the very unsexy American whiskey category, straight American whiskey category, 
let's take the bourbon, blend it with the almost rye, we were calling it, and turn that into the product, right? Okay, great. So we did some preliminary batching. It's coming out great, but we don't have a name. I had suggested that we call it the bastard batch. And Kate said, (laughs) over my dead body, are we putting a curse word on our label? And I almost lost my job over that because everyone in the company loved that name and they kept encouraging me to take a run at it. And uh, Brad said, if you ask again, you're fired. I was like, okay. (laughs) Wow. That's it. So no bastard batch. But no one was like supplying any good alternatives. Like no one could come up with a name for this because as you all might've noticed, we have a really boring naming strategy. Small batch, single barrel, double cask, barrel strength. I mean, these are boring names, right? But they're concer- it's kind of in the, in the Mead family tradition. It's very, just tell it as it is, right? But with this, we couldn't call it straight American whiskey. So we needed a name. So I called Steve and I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. And uh, I know he, he was waiting for this phone call. So it's here we are almost five years down the road from when he made it. And he picks up and, you know, that deep Southern draw of his, and you know, he's, he's a gentleman mm-hmm. always. And so pleasantries are exchanged and we get around to it. And I finally say, okay, Steve, I just want you to know that that, that rye you made is spectacular. He's like, good. I'm really happy for you. And I said, but man, we're having a, having a hell of a time naming the product. Why'd you only use 48% rye? He goes, because I told you I didn't want to make rye. <laughs> that's amazing what a dick oh yep. man oh that's great he just like threw, threw the grenade and ran and wow I you could have heard my jaw bounce off my desk like he did it on purpose so we ended the phone call not long How after bold. that I love it <laughs> I told Brad Brad couldn't believe that Steve did it on purpose and I suggested that we call the whiskey Defiance but there was already a defiant whiskey out there. So we couldn't use that. We looked at another name called Awry, which there's a small Colorado distillery that had already trademarked that. So Brad came up with Outrider. And in the cattle world, you know, when you move cattle, you've got the Outriders with an eye on the flanks that keep the spares in with the herd. And it was a great suggestion because then we could change the spelling of Outrider to include the letter Y to suggest that it was a rye without saying it was a rye. And it was perfect. And so that's become a leader. Edrington absolutely thinks Outrider is one of our stars, you know, if not the reason why they invested in us. And it's definitely, it, it has a following that our other products don't because we do use rye in that one product. So there you go. There's now, the I'm a, now I'm a lifelong fan because of that story. That's, oh my god! That's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. I'm a, I can't <laughs> wait to tell. I can't wait to see Steve. I know. How much time do we spend with Steve Nally? And we've never heard this story. I, I love know. it. I'll see him Friday at the Origin release. <laughs> I'm going to tell him about this. this he, we'll, we'll get his side of the story. I was like, yeah, it's not vastly different. He and I sat down this past summer in Thermopolis, and he goes, "You've been telling people I did it on purpose." I said, "Well, you did," and he just starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's that's gonna go down in the record books this is probably one of the better stories that we've heard on here oh, that's for sure without a doubt i know i know well david if you have any other fun stories let me know and we'll bring you back on again to be able to talk about some more of those ones because i think this has been a credible opportunity to learn more about you the history behind wyoming whiskey and everything that your team is doing to be able to kind of put out something that's 
different than anything else that we've been able to try out there. Like I said at the top of the show, the whiskey is great. It piqued our interest a long time ago. So I'm glad we took this opportunity to be able to sit down and hear your story and, and kind of know more about your side of things as well. Well, thank you, Kenny. I appreciate it. And Ryan and Fred, it's it's a pleasure. I I, I really enjoy being on the show. And you know, Fred, I watch your podcasts and whatnot, and uh, it's always interesting to hear your thoughts on things. And obviously, when you're reviewing a Wyman whiskey product, I tune in more acutely. But uh, thank you for all your kind words and including us in the top 100. That's a, a high honor, and I look forward to hearing this show in the future. So thanks again. It's been a pleasure to be on here. Cheers, man. Great yeah, seeing you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And so if people want to know more about Wyoming whiskey, where they can pick up a bottle, where they can find out more about it, give them an idea about where they can head to. Uh, go to our website, wyomingwhiskey.com. Uh, you can check out our Instagram page. You can check out our Facebook page. And if you happen to be in Kirby, Wyoming, booming metropolis of 92 people, you could swing by our gift shop there called uh, The Whiskey Shop. And if you get to Jackson, we just opened a retail store just off the town square called The Barrel House. And we carry you know all the main stuff, but then we also have private barrels, our tenure, and some specialty items there as well. So, uh, And you can always email me directly. I'm on the website. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to help. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you again for coming on the show. Make sure you go and check it out. I guess if you're in Kirby, that makes you population number 93. So hopefully, uh, you know, you can find yourself a grilled cheese sandwich or something while you're there too, right? We'll get something for you. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Nice ribeye. Yeah, so make sure you follow them. Make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on all your socials. Also follow our good buddy Fred Minnick over here. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>